Hello and welcome to the Beach House 34 podcast. I'm your host, Christine Worth. Today, we are going to talk about the Springfield Three. But before we begin, I want to preface this by saying that when I started to investigate the case of the Springfield Three, I had no idea what I was getting myself into. As you know, I do my best to give you an episode a week, but that is not nearly enough time to delve into all of the intricate details about this case. That being said, what you'll learn here today are details from local Springfield newspapers at the time of the crime up to and including this year, 2022. I've included as much as I could find without it being completely overwhelming, but just know that for every piece of information available, there were countless others just waiting in the wings to get added. The whole case is like a multi-layered Rubik's Cube. When you turn one corner, something else changes. Now, there are others who have contributed and covered this case incredibly well. And one in particular is a woman who grew up in the area at the time that the crime occurred. I will have her information available for you at the end of this podcast. It's a fascinating case. Uh, it's full of whodunits. And just when you want to point the finger at someone, there's someone else who pops up. I sincerely hope that for the sake of the families, that one day this will be solved. It has been a long 30 years. With that said, let's get to the case of the Springfield Three. It was June of 1992, and Susie Streeter and her friend Stacy McCall were getting ready to finally graduate from high school. They had been friends since second grade. A month earlier, a Springfield, Missouri newspaper published the names of all of the high school graduates in the area, which included Kickapoo High School, which is where Susie and Stacy attended. On Saturday, June 6th, around 4 o'clock in the afternoon, Susie and Stacy attended their graduation ceremony at the Hammonds Student Center. In addition to all of the parents, the grandparents, and siblings that attended was also Susie's mom, Cheryl Levitt. By Monday, June 8th, the Springfield Police Department would officially consider them missing. Now, Susie and Stacy, they had big plans for the night of their graduation. But before heading out, Susie was at home between 6 and 6.30 that night. And one of her friends, uh, Nigel Kenny, stopped over to Susie's house on Delmar Street and brought with her a small white cake that had a dinosaur on it. Susie loved dragons, but a dinosaur was the best that the store could do. Susie, Stacy, and Janelle, another friend of theirs, were also planning on heading to Branson later that night because they planned on going to a water park in Branson called Whitewater the next day. At 8.15 p.m., Susie, Stacy, and Janelle all got together at Janelle's house in Battlefield, Missouri. Now, this is about 10 miles away from Springfield so that they could all go to a graduation slash birthday party nearby. At 8.30, 
The girls walked from Janelle's house to Brian Joy's house in Battlefield. Now, when police questioned those that attended the party at Brian's, they all said that Stacy had talked with several people and didn't appear worried or unhappy about anything. In a newspaper article that appeared shortly after the girls were officially considered missing, Kathy Kirby, Janelle's mom, said that the girls had left around 9 o'clock to head to Brian's house, not 8.30. So there's a little time difference there. At 9.30 that night, Janelle called her mom and told her that instead of leaving for Branson that night, as they had planned, they were all going to stay at the party and then just leave for Branson in the morning. Also at 9.30, Susie's mom, Cheryl, received a call from a friend while she was at home hanging a wallpaper border and stripping a chair at their house on Delmar Street. At 10.30, Stacy then called her mom, Janice, and told her that they had decided to go to Branson the next morning and that her and Susie were instead going to stay at Janelle's house that night. Around 12.45 in the morning, several people, along with Susie and Stacy, head to a second party that's in Springfield. Susie and Stacy rode with others, and they left their cars at Janelle's house. They leave this party in Springfield at 1.50 in the morning, and then head back to Brian Joy's house in Battlefield. Once they arrive at Brian's around 2.10 in the morning, Brian says that they can't sleep there, so Janelle then invites them to sleep at her house. Now, if you remember, they had said, hey, the plans were originally to all sleep at Janelle's, but evidently they were just going to stay at Brian's party. Janelle, she had a lot of family members at her place, and it was really crowded. So Susie and Stacy instead decide to drive back to Susie's house in Springfield. At 2.15 in the morning, Cheryl, Susie's mom, arrives at APCO Amart on South Fremont Avenue. She's looking for Susie and Stacy, and this appearance of Cheryl will again come up a little bit later. At 2.20 in the morning, Stacy, driving her car, follows Susie, who is driving hers, and they leave Janelle's in Battlefield to head to Susie's in Springfield. At 4.30 in the morning, a brown 1967 to 1970 Dodge van with some rust along the sides is seen near Cheryl and Susie's house. At around 8.30 that morning, which is now Sunday, Janelle called Susie's house nearly a dozen times because they were all planning on heading to the water park in Branson that day. No one answered the phone, but Janelle kept trying, and obviously she received no luck. Nobody ever answered the phone. Finally, at 1 o'clock in the afternoon, Janelle called and told Janice, Stacy's mom, that Stacy had slept at Susie's house last night. She hadn't slept at her house, at Janelle's house. Now, Janice was still under the impression that Stacy had stayed with Janelle, but as she went ahead, Janice called Susie's house and left a message for Stacy, just checking to see if she needed anything. 
Janelle and her boyfriend Mike then head over to Susie's house. At this point, Janelle hasn't been able to reach Susie since 8.30 that morning. So she waits, though, until 1 o'clock in the afternoon to finally go over there. When they get there, the front porch light had been broken and glass is still laying on the front porch. Janelle was barefoot, so she let Mike approach the door. Janelle then looked around the house to see if she could see inside. She looked through one set of blinds that showed Cheryl's bed with the covers pulled back. Now, Susie and Stacy's cars, they were still in the driveway, and her mom Cheryl's car was still in the carport. Susie's bedroom looked out onto the carport, which was on the right of the house, and her blinds were bent as if someone had been looking out of them. After nobody answered the door, they, uh, Janelle and Mike, they tried the doorknob, and they found it unlocked, so they went inside. As Janelle looked around the house, nothing seemed to be out of place. Inside the house, all three purses of the women were in Susie's bedroom. All three sets of car keys were in the house. And of course, all three of the cars were still outside. Janelle later said, quote, I didn't really think anything of it. Janelle then saw a message flashing on the machine and hit the button to play it. And it ended up being her own voicemail that she had left uh, from earlier. Since no one was there, they left and they didn't lock the door behind them because they didn't know if Cheryl, Susie's mom, would be able to get back into the house or not. They cleaned up the broken glass on the porch and left. They then go to a friend's house for a couple of hours and again call Susie's. And again, there was no answer. So they go back to Susie's house at 3.30. Now again, Janelle and Mike, they walk inside. Nothing has changed since the last time they were there. However, while they're there, the phone rings and Janelle picks it up and it ends up being an obscene phone call. She hangs up the phone and the phone rings again. So again, she picks up the phone and again, it's the obscene caller. When they couldn't find anything, they then left to get something to eat. And Janelle, while she was in the car with Mike, started to cry, thinking something was really wrong. Mike's like, hey, don't worry about it. Let's just go have some fun. And so then they both go to a water park called Hydra Slide. Now, Stacy's parents, in the meantime, they have not heard from their daughter. Stacy hasn't called them. They didn't, she didn't call them in the morning to say, Hey, we're leaving for Branson, which was very unlike her. Stacy's mom, Janice, then calls Susie's house a couple of more times that day with no answer and then is quoted as saying, We did our own thing. They headed out to Lake Springfield with the rest of their family without Stacy to spend the day certain that Stacy was in Branson at Whitewater, which closed at six o'clock. So a seven o'clock rolls around and she still hasn't heard from her daughter. She again calls Susie's house and again receives no answer. At 7.30, another friend of the girls, um, Adina, her mom, called Janice and asked her, did you know that when Janelle went over to Susie's, all the cars were there and all the purses were there? 
Janice at this point, point, she's incredibly upset and rightly so. So she finds Janelle and Mike at Hydra Slide and soon at least 10 people enter Susie and Cheryl's house. Janice entered first, hollering out that they were there. No lights were on and it had started to get dark outside, so she tried to turn on the outside light, but it didn't come on. She eventually just walked into the house to find some kind of lamp. Uh, Cheryl's Yorkie, named Cinnamon, was, quote, yipping and running every which way and just acting strange. All these people, they look all over the house. They even yell into the backyard. Nothing. They then find the three purses at the bottom of Susie's bedroom stairs. Her jewelry was there. It was in a bathroom tray. Uh, Cheryl's cigarettes were still there. Stacy's migraine medication was there. Stacy's flowered shorts and even Stacy's brand new Gucci graduation watch that she had received was also still there. The group then sat in the house and they waited for about an hour. Janice said, quote, we were beginning to panic. They couldn't find a phone book in the house, so they looked inside Cheryl's address book and they called anyone they could looking for the three women. Around 10 o'clock that night, Janice, Stacy's mom, called her husband, Stu, and told him what was going on. Now, he had stayed home waiting for Stacy to call. Stu then also made his way over to the house. Janice then hesitantly called the non-emergency 911 number. She stated, quote, I didn't want to call 911. I didn't think it was an emergency. Now, this is where it gets a tiny bit confusing. In an earlier news article, it was reported that it was Stacy's dad who had gone to Susie's house and also found it unlocked, but no time frame was, was given as to when he had done this. He had found their purses, keys, money, and other belongings inside the house. The television was on and the dog was inside. He further stated that while Stacy had been given permission to stay with a friend in Battlefield, which we assume is Janelle, she had not been permission given permission to stay at Susie's house. He further said that while Susie and Stacy had been friends a while ago, they hadn't been very close recently. So again, this is in another news article. Further, it was reported that in addition to the clothing that Stacy had worn to the party, they also found her swimsuit in the house that she had planned to wear to the water park in Branson. Now, the Springfield police already had 375 missing persons reports over the last year. Uh, typically, people will leave for their own personal reasons and are usually back within 24 hours. If they're not, a missing person report is then filed. When the police arrive, it's Officer Rick Bookhout and a second officer who seem a little shocked that there were so many people inside this house. Janice told them, they're just not here. As the police looked around the house, Susie's bed appeared to have been slept in. Uh, tissues with makeup on them were found in the wastebasket, indicating that the girl's had been there and at least had time to remove their makeup before going to bed. Jewelry was still there out in the open, as Janice had first noticed. The purses that were found near Susie's stairs were all lined up. 
when an officer went through the purses, they found a wad of cash in Cheryl's purse, along with her cigarettes and lighter, uh, which concerned the officer because Cheryl was known to be a chain smoker and never left the house without her cigarettes. Another purse contained prescription medication, and this would be Stacy's migraine medicine. The tipping point for the police was the cigarettes. So at 2.50 in the morning on June 8th, a missing person report was filed. This is now approximately 23 hours since the women have been missing. Susie Streeter, 19. Susie's mom, Cheryl Levitt, 47. And Stacy McCall, 18, were all now officially considered missing. The police have everyone leave the house and they take a set of keys from inside the home and leave a note in the event that they do return. They then lock the house behind them. Now, Janice and Stu, they were the last ones to leave before the officers. They gave the officers a picture of Stacy. The officers then went around to all of the hospitals in the area to check to see if anyone had been admitted recently, showing Stacy's picture, but they had no luck. They then called several radio stations to get the word out. It was reported that the police, they didn't find any signs of forced entry, but they did notice the broken porch light. There were still shards of glass uh, lying around. If you recall, this was initially found by Janelle and Mike when they arrived the first time, but Mike cleaned it up. The bottom line is, though, that uh, with so many people having been in the house and with the glass on the porch having been, quote, cleaned up, the entire scene has now been tampered with. You know, not to mention that any fingerprints found in the home would now have to be compared with everyone who was in that house that night. Detective David Asher was assigned to the case. Now, he, along with a group of officers, they arrived at the house, they took fingerprints, and they collected whatever little evidence they could. At this point, they had two theories on what had happened. Um, Either a group of people had come in and forced them to leave, or they knew who the people were, and using some kind of lie or trick or whatever you want to call it, All three of them walked out of the house on their own in just the clothing that they were wearing at the time. Now, even though investigators searched the house for 11 hours, there was no indication of a struggle. And like I said, no indication of a forced entry. There was just nothing. Friends and family of the women spent the day Monday talking with police and posting flyers around town. Now, another newspaper article uh, happened to mention Adina. Now, if you remember, uh, she is a friend of the girls. And it was um, Adina's mom who had contacted Stacy's mom and said, Hey, uh, did you know that they found the purses and the cars at, uh, at the house? Now, Adina's family had invited Cheryl over for dinner that night, the night of the girls' graduation. But Cheryl declined. Now, even though Adina was mentioned as a member of their friend group, there was never any mention that Adina went to any of the parties with with the friends or that she had plans to even go to the water park with them the next day. Some of Cheryl's friends were confused because, according to them, 
Cheryl and Susie had an extremely close relationship and it seemed really strange that Cheryl would want to stay home and relax the night of the graduation rather than join in on the celebrations. However, you know, they're teenagers, you know, who wants their parents around, right? Detective Asher, he began his interviews and he started with all the families. Uh, the families wondered if maybe it was Cheryl who was the target. According to Cheryl's sister, she was a, quote, unique person, intense, passionate, responsible, smart, savvy, and the only way that someone would get the best of her is to hold a gun to her child's head. Cheryl was also recently divorced. According to her friends, Cheryl, she was friendly and quiet and mostly kept to herself. Um, she had been married twice, but she hadn't dated since her second divorce in 1989. And remember, this is now 1992. So it's been three years uh, since her divorce. She worked as a hairdresser at New Attitudes Salon and often would work on her yard or her home when she wasn't at the salon. Cheryl's friend Janet said that Cheryl was pretty strict with Susie. Uh, quote, if Susie got a phone call after 10 o'clock at night, Cheryl didn't allow her to answer it. So I know she would never let her answer the door after 10, especially at 2 a.m. Now, this is what Janet said. However, the night of her graduation, of Susie's graduation, Cheryl felt comfortable enough to let Susie be out at parties until 2 o'clock in the morning. So... The police theory at this time is that all of the women disappeared from Cheryl's home sometime after 2 a.m. Now, honestly, this is pretty self-explanatory, right? I mean, the girls never got back to the house until after 2 o'clock in the morning on Sunday, and they weren't there in the morning, so of course it was after 2 o'clock in the morning. Cheryl didn't have a habit of actually talking about either ex-husband, um, and Cheryl's son, Bart, agreed. Now, Bart's father was Brent, and no one in the family had spoken with him for several years. Um, her second husband, Don, no one knew where he was. According to Bart, he pretty much left my mom in debt and took off. Cheryl did try to hire an attorney to find him because his creditors were after her to pay his debts, but he could never be found. Now, on Tuesday, June 10th, the FBI joined the search for the three women. Over 30 officers, which included the local police and the FBI, questioned over 100 people. They even took to the air to look over wooded areas and waterways. Now, Cheryl Levitt, as I had just mentioned, had a son named Bart, um, who's Susie's brother, and this um, and Bart is from her first husband. He was 27 at the time the women went missing. He was an alcoholic, unfortunately. He had been disinherited by his mom and disowned by Susie. And Susie was a little afraid of him because Bart had a violent temper when he drank and had actually hit his mother before. Now, Bart had been living out of state for quite a few years, but after a relationship breakup, he had moved back to Springfield, cleaned, cleaned himself up, and gotten a job at a surveying company. The police bring in Bart for questioning. Now, Bart told the police that he hadn't spoken with his mom or his sister for, quote, a few months. According to a newspaper article, 
He said that the reason for this was over, quote, some complications with one of Susie's boyfriends. He did say, though, that he was still close with his mom. So there's a few few things that just really don't quite add up there about the relationship. But uh, the police did say that he appeared concerned and said that the night the three went missing, uh, Bart was actually at a neighbor's house. They had been drinking and watching television. Now, the neighbor did verify that Bart had been there, but Bart went home around 1130. Bart said that he fell asleep because there were no witnesses. There's no way to prove this. He was asked to take a polygraph, which he agreed to. And on June 12th, he passed. The police, though, were still skeptical because they said when you're an alcoholic, you often forget the things that you do when you're drunk. Now, the boyfriend of Susie's that Bart was referring to uh, may have been Mike Kovacs, who at the time was 17. Friends of Susie's family had said that he was physical with Susie. They had dated for about two years before they broke up in September of 1991. Now, this is a good eight months before the women disappeared. He did say he was worried about her and didn't know what to do, but that he was going to go talk to the police later that day. It was also reported that seven months ago, so this is about a month after Susie and Mike had broken up, Susie had gotten a restraining order against Mike. Now, this is according to Greene County Circuit Court documents. On October 23rd, Susie got a protective order for Mike Kovacs, who at the time was 17. The statement indicated that Mike had beat her up, slashed her tires, threatened her by phone, and harassed her at home, at school, and at work. Within the form, it reads, quote, I am afraid of him, and there is an immediate and present danger of abuse to me. Now, he, of course, denied the allegations and even said, quote, after we broke up, I never spoke to her again. I couldn't have done those things because I didn't talk to her. Now, the same day that Susie filed this protective order, she and her mom also filed a police report saying that Mike and another woman threatened Susie and slashed her tires twice. Susie's co-workers even said that she was so afraid that they would walk her to her car at night after work. For a time while they were dating, uh, Mike and Susie actually lived with Mike's grandmother for a couple of months. Now, his grandmother, um, Alvita, said that she often saw Susie and Mike fight. Quote, he never really hurt her. They would scuffle around a bit. It was sort of like him just pushing her around and physically shoving her away from him. The fight started when Susie tried to slap Mike and his grandmother said, quote, you know, naturally when that happens, your impulse is to strike back. He was a growing boy and maybe sometimes he'd shove her too hard, but she'd go into the furniture or something. Mike's still just a kid, remember? You've got to be pretty grown up to know that you just don't hit a woman. And damn, I'm rolling my eyes so hard right now, you can probably hear them. (laughs) Now, Susie, she was supposed to show up on November 5th, 1991 for the hearing to potentially extend the protective order against Mike, but she didn't, and so the order expired. Now, while the police said that they didn't consider Mike a suspect, they, quote, do have four or five people we are looking at very closely. 
These are people who have non-substantiated alibis for breaks in time during the time we believe the women disappeared. Mr. Kovacs is one of those individuals. Now, police did eventually polygraph Mike Kovacs. He passed the polygraph. He told the police that he was alone during the time the women disappeared, but there is no one that can confirm that for him. Another one of Susie's boyfriends was also under suspicion, Dustin Reckla. Now, Dustin, who's 20, and his friends Michael Clay, who's 19, and Joseph Rydell, 21, had been involved in a mausoleum break-in where they took teeth that had gold fillings out of a corpse. Yes, really, they did this. Susie's car was used in the commission of the crime, so Susie was brought in for questioning. She was cooperative and was due to testify in court against the men. Now, while Michael Clay, one of Dustin's friends who participated in the mausoleum break-in, was being interviewed, he reportedly stated, quote, I wish those bitches were dead. Not that bitch, but those bitches. So I'm not exactly sure who he was referring to. But in the end, this obviously set up a uh, red flag to police. Dustin said that he was passed out in a car on the night the women disappeared. No witnesses, however, could verify this. And no one could verify where Michael Clay was that night either. They were all fingerprinted and none of their fingerprints matched any in the house. Now, although this is my take on this, if it was a ruse to get them all outside anyway, no fingerprints would match inside the house, would they? I wonder, though, did the house have a doorbell? If so, did the perpetrators ring the doorbell? Would it have been possible to get a fingerprint from that? Maybe they knocked on the door or whoever it was may have touched the door. I wonder if the door itself was ever fingerprinted. All that aside, both Dustin and Clay agree to take polygraphs and they both pass and they're let go. Now to close this whole portion out, uh, their date to be arraigned on the crime of breaking into the mausoleum uh, was set for September of 1992. Michael Clay never appeared because he jumped bail. He was found and arrested in California while he was hitchhiking. It turns out that Joseph Rydell left for Illinois shortly after the women vanished on June 7th. Now, he too was found and arrested and returned to Springfield, where he was then sent to jail for the mausoleum break-in. Unfortunately, I could not find any information about whether or not Joseph Rydell was also given a polygraph after he was returned to Springfield. If anybody happens to know this information, uh, please let me know. You can leave a comment on my Instagram page. By June 11th, and this is three days after the women officially disappeared, the police said that there were somewhere between three and five people being looked at closely, but they wouldn't release any names. Now, someone did report to the police that a strange vehicle was seen early morning, Sunday morning, near Susie and Cheryl's house. But all that was mentioned was that, quote, someone saw a car in that neighborhood. So, you know, not really helpful. While the search for the women is going on, the television show 48 Hours uh, came to Springfield to film the search efforts. 
Uh, the show was expected to air in July of 1992 as part of a feature they were doing on Route 66. Now, the police, as they're investigating, they find out that the house uh, where Cheryl and Susie lived was actually new to Cheryl. She had just moved into the house a few weeks before all three of them went missing. This piece of information actually came from a former resident of the house who had previously rented it from her son. Now, she was 63 at the time that she lived there, and she said that there were often transients and, quote, parking lot partiers near the home nearly every weekend. Now, to put it in perspective, the home sits adjacent to some business buildings that have a rather large parking lot. Now, while there is a fence in the backyard of the house as of 2022, I don't know if it was actually there in 1992. Uh, The woman mentioned that about three years ago, a man was peeping into her house from the carport. And if you remember, the carport is on the right-hand side of the house, which then would be right next to the business buildings and the, the large parking lot. The man took off once he was discovered. Uh, Another time, just a year and a half ago, she heard someone open the screen door that led into the house from the carport. When she hollered, who's there? A man's voice responded with, is anybody home? She looked out her door and saw a strange man standing in the carport. She called him awful looking, a dirty looking old guy. Now, when the police heard her story, their response was, quote, In my experience, homeless transients usually have other things on their mind than kidnapping people. How to get more wine, mostly. Stacy's dad, Stu, has been in contact with or at the police station nearly every day and night. He even comes over during his lunch hour. Now, on June 12th, this is three days since the women have been missing, a variety of things happen. First of all, America's Most Wanted is set to show the case of the missing women at the end of its broadcast. However, the segment ended up airing about 15 minutes into the broadcast, resulting in tons of call-in tips that the police were not yet ready to handle. Second, uh, divers that day checked Lake Springfield to see if they could find anything. They continued to search all day until nightfall. Now, nothing was found, but they intended to continue the search the next day at other local lakes. Third, uh, police are also looking for help in finding two vehicles that were stolen the night the women disappeared. One is a burgundy Toyota Supra, and the other is a dark blue 19-foot Dodge van that has been converted into a motorhome. Fourth, the police received an anonymous map that led officers to an apartment complex in northwest Springfield. Now, the map was found after an anonymous caller told them where they could find the letter. It contained a rough drawing of the apartment complex with the phrase, quote, use ruse of gas man checking for leak. Dozens of apartments were checked, but after they had run the course of the apartment complex, they felt that they were just being led on a wild goose chase. On June 13th, 
more searches were begun on horseback, all-terrain vehicles, and even hiking through remote areas. Uh, the few things that they did find uh, were some tire tracks, some discarded liquor bottles, uh, soda cans, and some empty shotgun shells. And it's not clear if they took these items for testing or not. Around the same time, a composite drawing of a transient seen in the area of the house uh, was posted in newspapers. And on Tuesday, June 16th, police follow hundreds of tips from callers about this picture that they saw in the newspaper. Uh, several people call, say, hey, we've seen this guy. Um, the police describe the man as around five foot eight to five foot nine, around 34 to 48 years old, about 145 pounds with shoulder length, sandy reddish brown hair and a freckled tan complexion. Uh, this man is someone of interest because he was seen near Cheryl and Susie's house on Friday, June 6th, between 8.45 and 9 in the morning, and then again seen between 3 and 3.15 that same day. The following day, this same man was also seen sitting in a grassy area, and this would be Saturday the 7th. Again, this was not far from Cheryl and Susie's house. Police then get a tip on the 17th that Cheryl had stopped into the APCO Amart on South Fremont Avenue on June 7th at 2.15 in the morning. If you remember, I talked about this a little bit earlier. She appeared to be in, a, in an extreme hurry and asked the gentleman working, whose name was Steve Thompson, if she had seen Susie, Stacy, and Janelle come into the store. He said at first he passed it off as, quote, a concerned mother looking for her girls. Then after a couple of days, he saw the missing posters around town and noticed that the woman in the posters or the woman in the poster was the same woman that had come into the store trying to find the girls. Steve further said that the woman who had come in looking for the girls didn't leave in Cheryl's car a blue Mitsubishi Eclipse. Uh, it's unclear as to how he knew uh, what Cheryl's car was, unless it, I don't think it was on the posters, but nonetheless, um, according to police, he said, quote, to the best of my memory, it seemed like a larger, darker car, an older car, possibly a Cutlass or a Grand Prix. And my question is, you know, did any of her friends, Cheryl's friends, own a Cutlass or a Grand Prix or any kind of older model, older model uh, vehicle? Maybe she did call some friends and that was who was driving her around. Maybe because Cheryl was too upset to do it on her own. Um, again, this is uh, never found the answer to this question. As of Saturday, June 20th, the police are now saying that they are going to focus on Cheryl's background instead of the girl's, and they're going to follow the theory of a transient abductor. The police, in the meantime, they've been following any leads that they may have received. Uh, since the women went missing, over 600 tips were taken. Now, one of the tips, and this made its own news story, one of the tips was called lead number 259, and it said the following. A refused anonymous caller 
said that they worked with a W slash F, and I'm assuming that means white female, named, which has been redacted, uh, cleaning the Grand Palace in Branson, Missouri, last Saturday evening. This caller said that the person was bragging, and the person bragging happened to be a female. She was bragging about knowing who took the three girls. She wouldn't say who had done it, but she said it also involved a female suspect. She is supposed to live near, and this has been redacted. So on Thursday, the 18th, the detective who's following up on leads, Detective Woods, he makes a photocopy of this lead and tells his sergeant, Mark Webb, that he's going to take this lead. And his sergeant says, yes, please, you know, gives him the okay. He runs a computer check on the name given in the lead. Um, The woman lives in Springfield, but there's not many other details there. He then checks for file photos of this woman, and there are none. He then finds out where the company that might employ the person who's named in the lead uh, might be, but there's no phone number. He continues to make more calls to find this woman who he wants to bring in for questioning. You know, she's not a suspect, but he just wants to get more information. He finally finds a local company that employs the man who might know how to reach the woman. So he decides to wait until early Friday morning to follow up on this. Try as I might, and I really hate to do this. Try as I might, I could not find any information that updated the story. You know, perhaps it was related to another lead that was already mentioned. You know, uh, again, if you happen to know anything about this particular lead, if they did anything with it, uh, who it was, was it related to something else? Uh, Please comment on my Instagram page because try as I might, I could not find a thing about this. So now it's June 21st. And the women have now been missing for two weeks. On July 8th of 1992, and we've sprinted forward a little bit, Springfield Police Chief Terry Knowles said that they're in more or less of a marathon, but they don't know where the finish line is. Quote, I believe very sincerely there is somebody involved directly or indirectly who knows more. Uh, With the investigation now in its second month, the police chief gave an updated report on the case to the city council. Police found thumbprints and discovered that the three women had left through the front door and not the door that leads to the carport of Susie and Cheryl's home. They also state that Stacy was barefoot when she left. So I'm going to pause here for a second. If Stacy was barefoot when she left, I'm going to assume that the glass around the light in front of the house had not yet been broken. Because if she was barefoot, she most likely would have stepped on a piece of glass and there would have been a blood trail, right? And this is just my assumption. I'm not a police detective or anything. Just guessing here. So I'm assuming that maybe the light was broken after they had already been taken. The police also believe that more than one person was involved in the abduction. Um, At this point, there are still 26 detectives and officers continuing to work on the case. 
The chief did say that the evidence at Cheryl's house hampered the investigation. So the women's purses uh, were not actually in the same location in which they were found when Janelle got there as when the police got there. They had been moved. Um, and the witnesses um, all gave conflicting information, which is interesting to me. You know, what conflicted? These are the details that um, that are important, but unfortunately um, can't be found. They found 60 fingerprints, um, but found that the 18 people that were in the house uh, before they arrived, of course, you know, they have to go ahead and eliminate those individuals. So we're now on July 8th, 1992, and this is 31 days now that the women have been missing. Springfield investigators are bringing in a, uh, looking at bringing in a 52-year-old clairvoyant to see if he can help find the missing women. Now, the department has followed various psychic tips in this case. Officers don't put a lot of hope in psychic powers, and they haven't sought them out before, but they're hopeful that maybe this person can help them. Uh, his name is Carl Schutman, and he claims to have worked with law enforcement, including the FBI, to help in missing persons cases. He claims to have helped find nine missing people since 1985 in four different states. What made this so intriguing to police was that Carl Schutman called the Springfield police and spoke with an officer, Gerald Dove, after the women were featured on America's Most Wanted. He told the officer that he thought a brown van might be involved. And while investigators believed that too, the thing is this had not been released to the public. Uh, further, Carl said things about their possible abductors and their motives that the FBI had pieced together, but this information also had not been released to the public. So, of course, they're very intrigued about this. The FBI believes that it was at least two people that took the woman, the women, and that one of the women knew one of the men who lured them out of the house under a false pretext. Now, the police aren't jumping on this this clairvoyant quite yet. Uh, Carl did say that he doesn't charge, uh, but he would be grateful for travel expenses. Um, there is a reward at this time for more than $42,000, but it didn't mean anything to Carl. Quote, money is the root of all evil. Everything I do, I want to do honestly. This is a gift from God and so forth. Um, I never did find a follow-up to find out if he did arrive and did do anything. Um, so again, that's still, that's another unanswered question. In September 1992, now this is nearly three months after the women have been missing, a news article was published about a witness in a moss green van. Now, according to the article, it says that just after sunrise, a witness who wanted to remain anonymous said she saw a young blonde woman in a moss green van and then heard a man's voice demand, quote, turn around and back up, back up. Don't do anything silly or stupid. The witness was afraid and they didn't call the police. They instead said, quote, I went into the house and tried to forget about it. The police would only learn of this 17 days later. But it would be a month after that 
that a team of crime analysts actually brought the report to the attention of the investigators. So when the police do get to talking about the van, they won't say where the van was seen by the witness uh, for the safety of the witness, but that the witness said that the driver looked like Susie. She heard a male voice inside the van tell Susie to just back up. They described this van as having rear windows that have been painted uh, from the inside. It has large round headlights and round taillights. It appeared to have a new coat of paint and no stickers or emblems on it. It didn't have a license plate. There weren't any dents or any rust. Uh, The front grille was either off-white or a little rusty, and it's thought to be a 1964 to 1970 Dodge panel van. And I will have a picture of this on the Beach House 34 website. So a long, long time goes by. It's June 6, 1993. It's now been a year since the women have been missing. The police at this point uh, don't believe that they are still alive, but they do continue to pray for their safety. Yeah. Only two investigators are now on the case. Tips still come in, but they aren't recent. Uh, Many of them are dated, meaning that people who say that they thought they saw something, uh, but it was a year ago. On August 28th of 1993, the police searched land in Webster County. Now this search, it's a farm, farmland. This search took 15 hours. But the problem is, is that there's a court order that no one can talk about the search publicly. Officers on the scene weren't talking, but some sources say that they were looking for the possible remains of the women. The police received information from a confidential informant that the public wasn't aware of, and it led police to serve three search warrants at two locations in western Webster County. Now, police won't say anything about the informant or the evidence. On September 4th, 1993, the documents related to the searches in Webster County were immediately sealed. The evidence that was taken remains with the Missouri State Highway Patrol Crime Lab in Jefferson City, the lab still has to test what was found. Now, this is way bad. This is in 1993. When it did, the results didn't offer them any information. On October 31st of 1993, a Dodge Ram van was found abandoned at a campground in Indiana. It was a 1985 blue van with a camper top. It didn't have its license plates, and it was found at a campground off U.S. Highway 50, about eight miles east of Versailles, Indiana. A check of the VIN number showed that it was the van stolen from Springfield on the same day that the women disappeared. They did find out that the van was brought to the campground over the summer by a couple who also drove a pickup. They left the campground and left the van. Police believe, however, or they don't believe, that the van is linked to the abductions. Yes, it was stolen around the same time as the women disappeared, but that's the only connection to the case. It's not a major break. 
this van was actually stolen about 20 blocks from Cheryl's home between June 4th and June 9th. Um, Indianapolis police are checking the van for evidence and uh, will forward any findings to the Springfield police, but nothing ever uh, came of that. The Springfield police instead are more interested in finding an early 1960s metallic green Dodge van that they believe was used in the abductions. This is that Moss green van. So on December 12th of 1993, um, three months prior to this date, there was a jail inmate who claimed to know what happened to the three women was found to have been lying. Now what happened is the properties that were searched in August in Webster County, um, the, the, the same properties that were sealed under a gag order were found to have located bones but they were animal bones. There was also a van there, but it wasn't the van that they were looking for. Now the gag order on this information, this farmland in Webster County is still in effect. You know, nobody knows quite why. According to the officials, it's because uh, the document contains a lot of names and it could jeopardize the case. Uh, The police still say that there was a massive amount of information that came from numerous sources and that they're not done with the information. So even though they found that this uh, jail inmate uh, was lying about whatever he was lying about within this same document, they still have more information that they're evidently intending on researching. And that's why they're keeping it sealed and, and under a gag order. Although they further say that while they are skeptical, they did say that the man had released information to them that the general public didn't know about the case. So now we're up to November 4th of 1994. One detective is now assigned to the case. A few months go by. It's now February 24th, 1995, and it's now been 1,000 days and there has been no progress in the case of the Springfield Three. To date, 4,470 police reports have been made. The police have interviewed 400 people, and 2,000 have been named as witnesses, informers, or suspects in the abductions. But as of the 1,000th day, no one has been charged. The one detective assigned to the case does not want it to go cold. He is convinced that it's solvable. So in March of 1995, a month later, the one detective assigned to the case is told that he will no longer work solely on the case. He can still work on the case, but it can't be his only case that he works on. A man by the name of Stephen Garrison went on trial for the rape of a woman in Springfield in August of 1993. He had been questioned by police as a suspect in the June 1992 disappearances of the three women. Ten days before the rape, Steve Garrison was in jail, charged with a weapons offense. He was then let out on bond because the police wanted to question him about the three missing women, and they felt that he would talk more freely in a more comfortable environment. 
So they bring him to an to a hotel room and they sit there and while he's being questioned, he runs. He was found 20 days later and jailed without bond. This was nine days after the rape. So in other words, this guy, he's in jail for uh, or on trial for the rape of a woman in Springfield. Uh, the police want to talk to him. They think, hey, you're going to be more comfortable in a nicer setting. So they take him to a hotel room. He takes off. They can't find him for days. But during that time, he rapes somebody else. Now, some detectives don't believe that he's involved, that Stephen Garrison is involved, while others think that he may have something to do with it. In November of 1995, a group of veteran detectives decide to review the case. Uh, they all agreed that the motive was sexual assault rather than drug dealing. Now, how they could know that without having examined the bodies, I don't know. And when did drug dealing ever enter into the case? Uh, these are just a few questions because these come up and I'm sure there's lots of information that the police aren't releasing um, but the whole thing about sexual assault is, uh, is interesting because, you know, without a body, how can you prove that? Um, anyway, the list of suspects, which is at about 12, was agreed upon by the veteran detectives, but they disagree on how these suspects should be ranked. In January of 1996, a man who had been convicted of murder in 1988 um, had his conviction overturned and he happened to be living in Springfield when the women went missing. He had been in Florida on vacation with his parents in Orlando when a young woman named Sharon Zellers was abducted and murdered on her way home from working at Disney World. She was found only 100 feet from his hotel room. Even though he showed up bloody back to his hotel room, he was let go due to lack of evidence. Now, while he was free, he became a decorated army ranger. He took part in the Grenada invasion and became a second lieutenant. In 1985, while he was stationed in Monterey, California, he abducted a young woman after putting a seven-inch knife to her throat. Later that year, he drew a pistol on a female soldier and told her that they were going to the mountains. Both women escaped, but Cox was sentenced to nine years in prison. In the summer of 1992, he was let out of prison on parole and went back to Springfield, which is where his mom and dad lived. Almost two weeks after the Springfield three were taken, the police received a call from Florida. It happened to be the brother of the woman who was murdered in Orlando and who her family believes that Cox was responsible for because at the time of the killing, he was vacationing there with his parents. He had blood all over him. So this woman's brother, he called the police and he said investigators were interested, but quote, they didn't even know he was serving parole in Springfield. Now, Robert Cox's alibi during the time he was in Springfield came from his then-girlfriend, who said that she was with him all night. 
According to a People Magazine Investigates episode, Cox said he had been with his parents at a golf tournament the day of the abductions and then went to church the next day with his girlfriend. His girlfriend verified that he had spent the night with his parents and then the next morning they had gone to the Central Assembly of God Church. They just didn't have anything that would connect him to the crime scene. The Springfield police, they weren't convinced that Cox had anything to do with the abductions. And even though one detective did recall receiving a tip about him, nothing stood out. Even though he was on parole and had been imprisoned for killing someone, nothing stood out. Really? Police again contact Cox's former employer in Springfield, which is SM and P Underground Utility. They want to know if Robert uh, worked near Cheryl and Susie's home before the abductions, and evidently he did. Now, if you recall, on June 12th of 1992, the police had received an anonymous note telling them about an apartment complex. Now, the note had said, quote, use ruse of gas man checking for leak. And just to be fair, the uh, underground utility that Robert Cox worked for is not a gas company. They are a phone company, but they often survey the underground uh, wiring. Now, the man, Robert Cox, uh, is currently in a Texas prison for armed robbery. And this is in 1995. He had held a gun on a 12-year-old girl in a Texas business. And investigators from Springfield want to talk to him. Now, the interest in Robert Cox came about after all the veteran investigators looked over the case. So in January of 1996, detectives talked to Robert Cox for three hours. But according to police captain Daryl Crick, there was, quote, nothing earth shattering. However, they did say that Cox told them some things they didn't know before, quote, things that make us say we can't eliminate him as a potential suspect. Quote, we need to look at his alibi again. So in March of 1996, a couple of months later, they again speak with Robert Cox. This time he says, quote, he knows the women were killed and buried somewhere in Springfield or close by, and they'll never be found. He admits he was there after the abductions occurred, literally at the house, because he said, quote, Why watch it on TV when you can watch it in person? He further admitted that his job with the underground utility could have put him near Susie and Cheryl's home and further says, quote, I know exactly where it's at, no doubt about it. Well, of course he does. He's just said that he was watching it on television and then went to that location. So of course he knows exactly where the house is at. Coincidentally, Robert Cox actually worked with Stacy McCall's father, Stu, in 1991 at Reliable Chevrolet. Now, Stu McCall does not recognize him, says that they were in different parts of the building, sold different vehicles, etc. Cox further mentioned that, quote, there are several ruses to getting into a house. He then said that he was sure that it was Cheryl who was the target, but he didn't explain why. When asked about the girls, he said, quote, I think they just happened to get very caught up. They weren't supposed to be there. Situations change. 
it's very easy to control three people. When somebody comes into the room with a gun, the common person will follow what direction they lead. The common person. And three women would be, quote, very easily laid down, tied behind their backs and transported. He then said that he disagreed that the case needs to be solved. Family, loved ones, and a community do not need to know the truth, he says. At least not now. I don't think it would be the thing to do. The police chief had warned his officers to say very little about the case. He doesn't want to be sued if his department ends up talking about potential suspects. He states, quote, not to be secretive, but rules of law will not will not allow it right now. He, however, would not, not cite the law that he was referring to. Cox ended up being arrested again, and this time the girlfriend recanted her previous statement saying that she didn't know where he was the night the women went missing and that they did not go to church the next day. In light of this, a reporter from KYTV, Dennis Graves, decided to go to Texas and talk with Robert Cox himself. So in July 1996, Dennis Graves conducts an interview with Robert Cox and a and a report about it on the television station aired. The full taped interview, however, was requested by the grand jury and they were refused. So the judge um, in this case said that Graves, he had to hand over a copy of this unedited hour-long interview. Now, the portion of the interview that was publicized on television, Robert Cox all but admits to the killings by saying, quote, I know they're dead. I'll say that. I know that. Dennis Graves then comments, well, that's no theory. And Cox then says, yeah, but I know. I just know they're dead. That's not my theory. I just know that. When Graves tries to get more from him, Cox said that he won't give any more details until his mom passes. And at the time of the interview, his mom was 82. In August of 2002, authorities start to dig near an abandoned slaughterhouse near the small town of Marshfield after they received a tip. The police took cadaver dogs and they did hit on two places within the slaughterhouse. After two days, though, um, they did recover a handful of bone fragments and what they believe are human teeth, but unfortunately, they appear to be over 100 years old. In December of 2002, another man was tearing down a deserted farmhouse in southwest Missouri when he came across human bones in an upstairs bedroom. It wasn't until December of 2003, though, a year later, that authorities started to investigate. And this was because the man who found them just assumed that they were animal bones because they were under some hay. After removing the top floor of the barn, the bones fell and he saw a rib cage. He picked them up, he put them in a box, and he kept them in his truck for a week. Oh, sorry, a week or two before he then later put them on the deck of his house for a couple of months. He finally asked a neighbor to look at them, who happened to be a county commissioner, but he took them, him, them home with him and they stayed there for four days 
while he went on a hunting trip. The man's daughter, who happens to be a radiology tech, she looked at them and she said they were likely human. (laughs) So the man took them to the sheriff. Uh, The bones are thought to belong to a woman, just a single woman, about five foot two, and DNA tests were performed. But again, nothing came of it in regards to this case. In December of 2010, uh, there's now a new police chief for Springfield, Paul Williams, and he wants to take a look at the case of the Springfield Three. In February 2011, so just a couple of months later, the Springfield police got a tip that came from a freelance journalist by the name of Kathy Baird, who had written a piece on the case and received a tip that the women were buried underneath the ground floor of a parking garage. The name of this parking garage is referred to as uh, it's near Holston Cancer Center, but the name is Cox South Hospital Parking Garage. So if that doesn't, you know, go ding, 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 ding to, you know, to anybody, um, I'd be surprised. But Kathy had mentioned to police that in 2006, that a combination of anonymous tips and psychic visions had led her team of amateur detectives to the structure. Uh, This is where the group wanted to scan the area using ground penetrating radar. Now, at the time of the abductions, it was a dirt lot. So in an interview done by Crime Watch Daily with Chris Hansen, uh, this one's entitled Part 3, if you want to look it up. Uh, it's called What Happened to the Springfield 3. It's on YouTube. Kathy states that she contacted the police, and according to Kathy, the police laughed at her. So she hired a company herself that specializes in ground-penetrating radar. And essentially what this is, is a large machine. It's like a large, I think of it as a large x-ray machine that can actually go over um, any kind of of topography. So cement, uh, dirt, it doesn't matter. But it penetrates the ground and can tell you if there are any anomalies that would indicate, say, bodies or tunnels or something along that line. When the person working the radar, when they were done, they did tell Kathy that he found two images in one location and one image in another location. Now, at the time, he didn't know what it was that Kathy was looking for. So when she told him that she was looking into the disappearance of three women, he indicated that what he had found was consistent with what he knew to be graves. The police, however, say that the timeline doesn't add up. The parking garage began construction a year after they went missing. So this doesn't make any sense to me. If they were killed right away, or even within a year, and buried in the dirt there, and then the parking lot garage went up, this doesn't mean it doesn't mesh with the timeline. Uh, The police further said that if it were true, the excavation that took place prior to the parking garage going up would have unearthed the women. Uh, when asked who the target was or who Kathy thought that the target was of the whole abduction case, Kathy says it wasn't Stacy. She was then asked, what do you believe the motives were for who took Cheryl, Stacy, and Susie? You know what she replied? I'm not going to talk about that. So the reporter, she is dumbfounded. I mean, you've got the world at your fingertips. You're on national television. Why won't you talk about it? Why are you doing this interview with us? 
And Kathy says, because the story needs an ending. It's as if Kathy is playing games at this point. Like she knows, but she won't say. So the producer then jumps in and asks Kathy, quote, I continue to be confused why we're doing this interview. And Kathy says, I've already said that. The producer then says, you know what? We've been doing this a long time. It's not really clear because you're talking in code. And Kathy says, I'm sorry you don't think that I'm giving you the answers that you need or you want, but I live here and yeah, I'm afraid for my safety. She goes on to say that she's been threatened and advised to leave the case alone. When the reporter says that it sounds like there's something really dark in this story, Kathy agrees and says, be careful who you trust. There's a reason this case hasn't been solved. The new police chief now has three detectives and one sergeant working on the case. And just for the record, the police never dug up the parking lot uh, garage or the garage floor. In June of 2012, a vigil was held for the three women, marking 20 years after they had gone missing, was still no answers in the case. In June of 2022, their case was again highlighted in a Springfield newspaper. They have now been missing for 30 years. If you have any information regarding the case of the Springfield Three, you can visit springfieldmo.gov slash 2498 slash 3 dash missing dash women. You can also call the Springfield Police Department at area code 417-864-1810. As promised, here is the information for the podcast that dives much deeper into the case. It's by Anne Roderique Jones, who grew up in Springfield at the time these events happened. Uh, to listen, visit pod, P-O-D dot link, L-I-N-K slash Springfield three, the number three. Again, thank you so, so much for listening. I appreciate each and every one of you. I know this has been really long and could quite honestly be much longer. I mean, this could definitely be a multi, multi, multi-part episode. But nonetheless, I hope you enjoyed it. I hope it gave you some information you might not have known before. Uh, if you do have anything that you can add to this case that maybe you have heard uh, or read about, uh, please do not hesitate to hit me up on the Instagram page at Beach House 34 Podcast. I would really appreciate it. I'm really considering maybe diving into this a little bit further in the future. So again, thank you. Thank you. Thank you.